It's interesting, several of you throughout the day, since I mentioned growing up in rural Minnesota today, have asked me, so how did you get from a town of 600 people to teaching at Whitworth University slash here? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's, I never had a plan for it. Uh, I told one of you, uh, when I was in college, I went to a school called Crown College in Minnesota. It's a Christian Missionary Alliance school. I didn't have a clue what the Christian Missionary Alliance was. Um, I hardly knew what Protestant churches were. Um, I had grown up in the Roman Catholic Church and um, uh, come from a very strong Catholic background. Um, my maiden name is Gorenson, and so that's you know very Scandinavian. But then the other side of me is very Catholic, Italian, and Luxembourg. Um, so that on that side, um, I have you know great aunts who are nuns, uh, great uncles who are priests, bishops. Uh, my great uncle was the Bishop of St. Cloud, Minnesota. And um, you know that's just been part of my heritage. And so small town, uh, Minnesota, 600 people, you have a Lutheran church, you have a Methodist church, and you have a Catholic church. So we went to the Catholic church. And, um, but as I said, I attended a, a, a camp, a Protestant camp, and um, when I was 12, gave my life to the Lord there. And from age of 12 onward, um, essentially started this journey. I don't know your name, but you mentioned you know, my journey. And uh, you know, when I think about it, God is just so gracious and merciful. He has had me on this journey with him since I was 12 years old. And um, you know, I'd be that nerdy kid who's reading my Bible and um, wanting to you know, pray at meals with my you know, mom and dad and brother who are not religious. Um, and uh, anyway, so I went to college and I, I anticipated going to just do one year of Bible classes. I was so hungry just to have somebody teach me the Bible. Um, rather than me just reading it. And I had you know, wonderful mentors who discipled me at this camp. Um, uh, and then in the spring semester of my, my uh, freshman year there, I took a Galatians class. And well, the rest is history. I just realized, right, like the moment that Paul starts talking about Abraham uh, and the fact that you know, the faith aspect has always been there, the Old Testament is a necessary part of understanding why Jesus came, what the New Testament is all about, and then he gets to talking about being new creations, and then you're in Genesis, and pretty soon I had the whole Bible in front of me in a completely different way than I'd ever understood it before, and um, you know, so I said, okay, I'll stick around for another year, and then three years and four years, and in my junior year in undergrad, one of my professors said to me, uh, you know, Haley, what seminaries are you thinking of applying to? And I, I literally said, what's a seminary? I, I, hadn't, I was completely ignorant. Um, I was just kind of, I was just learning about, about the Bible. And um, then I went on this journey, and somehow from there to seminary to, uh, somehow I wound up, in, wound up in Scotland, and I don't know, but you know, God is, God is a pretty incredible God when you think about each of our life journeys that he has us on. So journeys, uh, we're going to take a bit of a journey tonight through Romans. Um, as you can see on the screen, it's called the narrative of glory, and I mentioned that earlier today. Um, I'm going to try and stick more to my, my notes tonight, because they're quite a bit m longer. There's more information, yes, even than there was this morning, 
we are in Romans after all. I mean, this morning was just the Old Testament, but now we're in Romans. So all the more reason to be disciplined. So, but a, a quick reminder of essentially what I said this morning. When used with regard to humanity in the LXX, the Septuagint, Daniel, and one Enoch, doxa, glory, and doxazo, to glorify, primarily refer to or associated with concepts of honor, power, dominion, wealth, authority that come with this status, exalted status, other than Moses' reflected face, reflecting the splendor of God, at no point is it unequivocally the case that humanity is given a glory such that they are meant to or made to shine. Rather, it's almost entirely the case that the glory given to a person or a person's glorification either constitutes with an, uh, almost either constitutes or is closely related to the honor, power, wealth, or authority associated with a status of rule. That's the lexical use of these terms throughout the Septuagint, and it's just, I mean, in my mind, undeniable. So tonight, we transition to Paul and to Romans. More specifically, we transition to making sense of Paul's references to glory and glorification in Romans. Uh, He has what I am calling a narrative of glory that runs throughout, especially Romans 1 through 8. We'll dip into Romans uh, 9 briefly, but really it's going to be as we all think of Romans 1 through through 8. Uh, Before looking at this, um, I want us to just think through, again, how we think of notions of glory. Um, again, Paul uses this word, he uses it 61 times throughout his whole, all of his letters. 61. In Romans alone, 15 times. Glory itself, 15 times. To glorify is five times in kind of various forms. And as I said this morning, it's typically defined or assumed to be a visible splendor, a radiance, a glory, uh, a brilliance that often, though not always, connotes this manifest presence of God. When we think of the glory of God, we think of God being present and God shining. That's essentially what it boils down to. This is especially the case when we think of Romans 1.23 and 3.23. And show you, uh, gave you a few examples of if you open any commentary to these two verses, these are examples of how they will describe it. So Romans 1.23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Of course, Romans 3.23, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, these commentaries Uh, These are all coming from commentators. My guess is that the majority of you have each of these on your shelves. Uh, In other words, they are the key Roman commentators out there from 1970 onward, one in 1970s. The splendor and majesty that belong intrinsically to the one true God. The awesome radiance of deity, which becomes the visible manifestation of God in theophany and vision. I mean, how much more specific can we get with that? The radiance which awaits the justified in heaven. The radiant external manifestation of God's presence, or the magnificent presence of the Lord. This is how, when we fall short of the glory of God, this is how commentators are understanding the glory which we fall short of. That list could go on. And again, as I mentioned this morning, there's precedence for it. 
the Damascus, Damascus Christophany, um, right? Paul experiences the resurrected Christ as this shining light. It's why he likely is able to equate the risen Christ with God himself because of that tradition, that history. Um, Paul's clear use of doxa in 2 Corinthians, again, reflecting on, reflecting, thinking back to Moses reflecting the glory of God. It's there. In these texts, what scholars will often do is go to the uh, Jewish literature that has um, Adam and Eve losing their kind of garment of, of splendor, um, the Apocalypse of Moses or Genesis Rabbah, um, texts that were written potentially before Paul would have been writing, but more likely any time between maybe 200 and even 400 CE. We don't know when they were written. That's the issue. But either way, in my mind, the background for Paul is this rich history of the Septuagint and his Roman environment. There are issues associated with the connecting of light imagery and even the presence of God um, in these texts. The Apocalypse of Moses and Genesis Rabbah, again, uh, Charlesworth says they were likely written more closer to three to four hundred, so many years after Paul. So the idea of Paul writing these texts with this Jewish text in mind where we have Adam and Eve are clothed in uh, glory and clothed in the splendor of God and then that kind of disappearing at the fall, um, again, likely Christian texts written many years later. There could have been an oral tradition to that that Paul would have been aware of, but again, we don't know. The Damascus Christophany is certainly an issue, but we keep in mind Paul didn't write Acts 9, and even in Acts 9, Luke doesn't use the word glory to describe that Christophany. He uses light from heaven, not glory. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul clearly uses doxa as the reference to the splendor of God reflected in Moses' face, but the presence of God is not Paul's point in the passage. His point is the Spirit's ministry is superior to that of the law's ministry. The glory that comes with the new covenant is greater or more superior than, a higher status on some level, than that of the law. And I think that one cannot justifiably interpret the theology of glory or glorifications in Romans on the basis of one or two texts elsewhere. It's an entirely different letter with an entirely different context, an entirely different people, in an entirely different place. Good biblical scholarship takes context into consideration. We all learn that in each of our reformed seminaries, right? Context is king. That's step number one of good exegesis. So the idea of taking these kind of key texts that we know are important and saying this is how these words should be used across the board is just not a good starting place. Moreover, more primary uses of glory in that Roman imperial culture would have been the idea of ancestral glory, of reaching a status where they have that honor. That's what glory was in the Roman Empire, and you do so through dominance, through power, through authority, right? Uh, slaves don't have glory. 
because that's a foreign concept in the Roman Empire. So, all of that is somewhat background, somewhat where we've been, and also a reminder of this context for Paul. Before looking at this overarching narrative of glory, I need us to think about one key text. So in all of the Septuagintal texts that we saw this morning, uh, one of them, I think, well, two of them, but one of them in particular stands out as paramount for Paul. And that is Psalm 8. So let's read it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Think about what glory is in this case. Is it shining light? I mean, potentially. But if we keep reading, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have subjected all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? This is the magnificent works of God, the display of who God is in his creative self. But most notable is the psalmist's use of doxa falling into this semantic category of, of status, of honor, of power, of dominion. To be crowned with glory and honor is only to have dominion. That's the only thing it can mean. Especially when you put that with all things being subjected under the Son of Man's feet. At least in my reading, it can be interpreted no differently. The psalmist is painting a picture of Yahweh as this majestic creator king, a king who reigns within his kingdom as a sovereign over all that is, yet a king who does not rule alone. He does not rule without a mediator. Yahweh has created humanity in order that humans might reign as vicegerents or vice-regents over his creation, maintaining via their dominion the goodness and the beauty that was part of the original created order. There are a number of reasons why I think Psalm 8 is critical for us to think about and when we think about glory in Romans. Number one is that undeniably Paul was aware of this psalm as was the early church, and recognized its importance for the person of Jesus. A few texts that we see it in Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a direct quote from Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. Undeniable that Paul knows Psalm 8 and is recognizing the importance of it. Ephesians 1.22, he has subjected all things under his feet and has made him who is Christ the head over all things for the church. Paul echoes the psalm in Philippians 3.21, 
when we're waiting the Savior who will come from heaven, who will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. He doesn't say under his feet here, but we clearly have an echo of the psalm. And I put in Hebrews there for us to see that this isn't just Paul. At least I don't think that Paul wrote Hebrews. So whoever is writing Hebrews, I suppose that's a presupposition, whoever is writing Hebrews, may it be Paul, but likely somebody else, also recognizes the importance of Psalm 8. It has been testified or written, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So it's this reading of the psalm, recognizing that number one, humanity was meant to have this, that Jesus does have this as the son of man, but yet not fully, not yet. It is very Pauline in this theology. I still don't think it's Paul, though. So that's the first thing with Psalm 8. The second thing is its relationship to Genesis 1. Paul, even in 1 Corinthians, brings Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 together with the idea of who Adam is. Right? In 1 Corinthians 15, he is talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all things under his feet. In other words, Paul isn't just using this psalm to say Jesus is going to rule one day, but he's using this psalm to create this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Because... More than likely, Psalm 8 is going to be a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Now, it could be the opposite as well, depending on when we date when Genesis 1 is written. But either way, they are saying the same thing. Here is Genesis 1. This is quite fun, because Adam's chatting about the image of God in a very similar way and in a very different way. Uh, I think we're going to be doing this throughout the rest of the week, actually, which is even more fun. This is completely unplanned. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, I don't know any more than Adam or likely any of you what the image of God actually is in its entirety. Um, As Adam said, you know, you can look throughout church history and we have a whole swath of different interpretations of it from uh, reason to relationship, um, 
so many different things that the image of God represents. Morality, the capacity to, to have an ethical life. I think, as Adam said, that it's going to be many things combined. But I think one thing is true. If we put ourselves into the context of ancient Israelite culture, and we are ancient Israelites reading this text, let's assume it's been written in, say, the, you know, just before the pre-exilic time period or post-exilic. We are people living in a realm, a kingdom, where we think of God as our king, potentially, depending on what status we're at in Israel's history, whether we're being faithful or not. But either way, we're surrounded by nations that worship pagan gods, idols, idolatry. That is the context. We don't think of this so much today because we don't think of idols. We think of idolatry, maybe, depending on how we define that. Um, you know, we can, we can have our idols out there, a Hollywood star or whatever it might be, you know, an athlete. But that's very different than the world of idolatry in the uh, ancient Near East, where you would actually have idols made of clay or stone or wood that are crafted by the artisan's hands and then proceeded to be worshipped. A very different context. So if we are ancient Israelites and we are reading this, I don't think we're thinking, oh, we can live ethical lives. I don't think they're thinking, oh, we have rational capacities. I think they're thinking just what the words say. We as humans have been given dominion over the created realm. In other words, what the text is saying isn't so much something about uh, being intrinsic to ourselves, as Adam kind of mentioned this morning, as much as what we're meant to do. The fact that God has put humans on the earth in order to do something, to have a vocation, to have a function, to have a role. And the role that we play in this created realm, this kingdom of God over which God rules, is to do as any representative of a king would do, to represent the king. If Queen Elizabeth sends an officer out to northern Scotland and says, I want you to go and take a message to people up there from the queen, from myself. They go not representing themselves, they go representing the queen, the monarchy. They are doing it in her name. It's the same idea here, where the people, humanity, who are created in the image of God, they are given this vocation. They are created to go and represent the king to the world, to the rest of the created order. Of course, that doesn't work out very well, but that's what Paul is going to get at. But when we think of Psalmate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, they're very much aligned, right? One is commenting on the other, one way or another. You just don't have two texts like this that essentially say the very same thing completely in completely different contexts. But the things that are overlap are this context of kingship, this focus on Adam or humanity, right? What is the son of man? What is mankind that you consider him? The son of man that you care for him? This dominion over creation, but not just dominion, the dominion over this kind of threefold or fourfold creation, at a minimum three. Beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. 
Psalmite doesn't include the creeping things that creep on the ground. But it's very similar either way. So Psalm 8 has this reflection on Genesis 1. And even if it's not Genesis 1 that Paul is picking up on in these texts, Psalm 8 does the exact same thing. To the point where, can we say that being made in the image of God and being given dominion is essentially synonymous with being crowned with glory and given dominion? Yeah, I think so. I saw those heads nodding. So we're going to go with it. The other thing to say here is Psalm 8, when it was interpreted, I'll go back to the text, when it was interpreted throughout the end of um, Israelite culture, history, as we transition into Jewish literature, Psalm 8, the son of man, gets interpreted in various ways. For some, it's Abraham. For some, it's Enoch. Various people the son of man gets interpreted as. But almost always, that person, whoever it is, is fulfilling the vocation of Adam. They always bring the son of man character back to the original character of Adam, which is hugely important if that's coming up to the time period of Paul, and that's the context which he is working with. That son of man is instantly equated to fulfilling the vocation of Adam in Genesis 1. So that's background, I think, to Romans. So let's go to Romans. Here's where we're going for the rest of our time tonight. Mm, No, that's not true at all. That final one we're not getting to. Romans 8 is just too big. Everything begins and ends in Romans 8, and so we're going to wait on it. Uh, Just tell yourself, good things come to those who wait. So Romans 8, it will come tomorrow morning, I promise. Tonight, we will go through these first two kind of chapters of sorts in this narrative. When humanity forsakes the glory of God, and then when Israel forsakes and then kind of regains this glory of God. And then we'll look briefly at where humanity begins to regain glory just before we get to Romans 8. Since, as you can see in the text, there's a chunk of glory in Romans 8 that will require its own, its own time. So here's what I'm going to go. I'm going to suggest that throughout the letter, there's an implied narrative of glory, a narrative that begins in 123 and 323 with humanity forsaking the glory of God, which is to say humanity's proposed identity and vocation and ends with God's people receiving again the glory of God seen in these various places. This narrative of glory forms the heart of the meaning behind Paul's dense phrase, conformed to the image of God's Son. When we read doxa in Romans through the lens of a post-Damascus, post-Christophany experience of Psalm 8 and its relationship to Genesis 1 and 3, the occurrences of doxa throughout Romans begin to tell a remarkable story, a story of enthronement, abdication, and re-enthronement of God's people as God's representative within God's kingdom. This narrative of glory is broken down into the three distinct chapters, the first being Adam, the second being Israel, and the third being when God's children, God's eschatological family, as he'll point to in Romans 8, regains their status as those who have this position of rule. 
humanity forsakes the glory of God. It begins with Romans 1, 23 in particular, but context is king. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Okay, that glorify is obvious. They did not worship or exalt him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Since antiquity, Christian antiquity, in terms of when Christians began writing on these verses, they have been read with the Edenic fall, the fall of Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden as the narrative for the backdrop to this. More recently, however, scholars have begun to reject this idea because they would say that the fall narrative is not actually in the text. The fall in Genesis 3 is not explicitly about idolatry, the worship of an image, as these verses in Romans 1 are. And I agree. I don't think that Paul has in mind Genesis 3 in this text. But that does not mean that he doesn't have Genesis in mind. Rather, I think Paul has Genesis 1 in mind. Not so much thinking through the exact narrative that we have in 3 with the tree, with taking the fruit and eating, but rather thinking of what humanity was meant to be in its created self. Here, both textually and theologically, I think Paul's point has been overlooked. Nonetheless, some people do recognize these texts. They simply don't make anything of them. Three things here, though, for why we can see Genesis 1 behind Romans 1.23. Well, most of these verses. Number one, he clearly puts it into the context of since the creation of the world. How can we not think of Genesis 1 when he says since the creation of the world? We're not meant to go to, you know, 1 Kings. We're not meant to go to Lamentations. We're meant to go to Genesis 1, since the creation of the world. We have the threefold reference, again, to the animal world. The birds and animals and creeping things. And then, perhaps even more strongly, we have the, uh, the echoes or the same language here of... Um, Image, ikon, created in the image of God, their worshiping image. For Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the word likeness is used. Let us make them in our image and likeness. Here, Paul has an emoyomati, in the likeness of images. It's the same word that's used. And then he has anthropos. Let us make man, anthropos, in our image and in our likeness. How can we have these words so potent with meaning from an incredibly significant text and not think this is what he's drawing on? 
Um, and yet it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for why he would, unless we understand glory not as God's radiance, right? If glory, which they are exchanging, isn't the radiance of God or the splendor of God, but rather the rule of God in which they have been called and commissioned and created to participate, then it makes a whole lot more sense why Paul would use this text as the background. The typical interpretation is that Adam ate the fruit and somehow lost his garment of glory, right? He, he was at first shining, he ate the fruit, and then he stopped shining. He lost his garment of glory. Now, whatever that means, we don't know uh, from these early Jewish texts, nor do we think about it when we think of Adam being shiny at the beginning. We, that's kind of where we end, he shined. We don't think about why. But what happens when these weaknesses are overturned? First, we recognize the importance of Genesis 1, 26-28. In that text, humanity is made in the image of God, and again, that probably means a whole lot of things that we can't put words to. But at a minimum, it's connected to that dominion. They're given dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and everything that creeps on the ground. That is to say that humanity is created to represent God to the created realm. Humanity is created to rule, to have dominion in the name of God, as God's image, his representatives. Think about if you go into a pagan temple, right, in, uh, you know, third century BC Greece. Have any of you been to Greece? I went to, in January for the first time. It was just absolutely splendid. Um, in part because as you walk into, say, the Parthenon, and you can only imagine walking in, you've got these massive columns and this structure that's in some ways representing the heavens. If you were somebody living at that time period, what you would walk in and see is the image of the God. Because in the temple is where the statue is. The idol lives in the temple. The image of the God lives within the temple. It represents the God. It's the same language that our Bible is drawing on because it, that's its context. So humanity is the representative of that God. Second, if the glory of God is not his brilliant splendor, which Adam subsequently loses, as is often the lexical use, then the glory of God, which Adam exchanges, is not God's radiance, but rather the rule and authority of the creator God, in which Adam was commissioned to participate. It's not something intrinsic to him. It's something that is given to him. And that will be important. Adam did not exchange a shiny robe or a radiant body. He abdicated his God-given throne, having been crowned with glory and honor and given dominion over all things. Right? That's the role of the Son of Man. That's the role of humanity that God is actually caring for. And Paul emphasizes the fact that in its rejection of God, humanity failed to be the image of God in its created purpose, as those who are meant to rule over the created order. That was humanity's created vocation, having been made in the image of God, but Adam chose to let something else rule in his stead. He abdicated his throne. Romans 3.23. This abdication of the throne is again expressed, much more short, 
all sinned, or all have sinned, but it, I think maybe should be all sinned, and lack or fall short of the glory of God. If we put it in context with what Paul has just said, two chapters previous, when you look at the narrative, it's not two chapters, right? It's just what he said earlier in his letter. If all exchange the glory of the immortal God, right, that is now all sinned. What do we think of when we think of sinning? In this context for Paul, it is all exchanging the glory of God, all doing the thing which they are not meant to do, all doing the opposite of what their created vocation was. And therefore, they lack the glory of God or fall short of. Uh, interesting, the, the Greek word here, hustereo, to, to fall short of or to lack, um, never is it translated as to fall short of anywhere else. Every other time it's used, it's translated as lack. But for some reason, in Romans 3.23, every translation wants to have fall short of. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Even when we think of the idea of the glory of God being kind of the splendor, radiance, the, the presence of God, um, even if we think of that as the holiness of God or the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, and we fall short of that, we're still lacking it. Anyway, I don't know. But I think lack fits perfectly. Uh, we're not possessing it. We're not participating in it. Romans 1.23 and 3.23, I think, both describe humanity's intended identity and purpose. Identity and purpose as God's vicegerents by representing and by describing its exchange of and thus loss of God's glory, the glory that the Son of Man in Psalm 8 was intended to possess. The end of our beginning. Chapter 5. Paul doesn't use the word glory here. He doesn't use glorify. Here he uses basiluo, which means to reign or to have dominion. Same idea. The case for this becomes even more clear here. Doxa and doxazo are absent, but basiluo is there. It's a Greek word for reigning and having dominion. The word occurs only here in Romans. And it occurs in this passage with notable frequency, right? When this stuff happens, you're supposed to take notice. So we should take notice of Basiluo here. It only occurs here and several times. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, it's not Adam who reigns, but Hothonatos, death. Death reigns. In 5, 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come, right? Paul's gonna start his Adam-Christ typology, just like he does in 1 Corinthians 15. He's gonna say there's one man, Adam, disobedience, another man, Adam, obedience, right? And two very different consequences. In 5.17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Okay, we think of death as, uh, as our flesh decaying, our heart stops working, an organ gives out, and our body stops functioning. And of course Paul had that idea of death. 
But as you all know, Paul also had this idea of cosmic powers. He thought about the spiritual realm in which he lived. Uh, And for Paul, what Jesus does on the cross is, yes, provide atonement and forgiveness for our sins, but also go to battle against these powers. Death was reigning The thing which wasn't meant to exist in the good created realm has been reigning from that time. So on the cross, death is defeated as a power which has reigned and held captive God's people. 521, sin reigned in death. These are the words that Paul is using because in his understanding, only certain things or people should reign. Only certain powers should be in charge. And that's God and then God's people, not evil. So this is all humanity abdicating its throne. In light of what Paul says about the reign of sin and death, in contrast with the intended reign of Adam in Romans 5, right behind it is the idea that death isn't meant to reign, Adam is meant to be reigning. But Adam screws up, he gives up his throne, he gives up his vocation as God's representative and allows something else to reign in his stead. With the intended reign of Adam in Romans 5, it's possible, even probable, that Paul's use of glory in Romans 1.23 and 3.23 does not refer to a visible shining light that Adam loses or the awesome radiance of God's deity, though that would be awesome, especially if it was radiant. I just don't think it's there. The glory Adam exchanges or loses is his intended reign over creation. It's the glory with which mankind is crowned, the glory man has as mediator between God and his creation, as God's keeper of creation, as his vicegerent on his royal throne. The glory of God in which all humanity was created to participate, but has chosen instead to forsake by rejecting its created purpose. So that's what Paul is doing with humanity, glory at large with humanity chapter one of this narrative of glory. Chapter two of this narrative of glory is what we don't usually think of. Israel. The Bible doesn't go from Genesis 1 through 11 to Jesus, right? Genesis 12 happens, and then the rest of the Old Testament happens, and it's important. Israel happens. Israel is given the same vocation that Adam was given. Israel is in some way a recapitulation of the story of Genesis. Chapter 1 especially, chapter 3 especially. So 123, yes, we just looked at that in terms of humanity in Genesis 1. But again, if Israel is in some way a new humanity, a new representative of God, right, a light to the world around them, then they fall into these same categories. So while Paul alludes to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in 1, 23 through 25, he at the same time alludes to Israel exchange of glory recorded in Jeremiah 2, 11, and Psalm 106. So 106, they, or Israel, exchanged their glory, and it's the same word there, alasso, 
their glory for a likeness of a bull calf that eats grass, referring, of course, to the golden calf episode, the fall of Israel. Just before this, they have said to Moses, when he comes down off the mountain, will you obey God? And they say, all that God commands of us, we will do. So he makes the covenant, he sprinkles the blood on them, and they say it again, all that God commands of us, we will do. He goes back up on the mountain, and then they're like, hey, this Moses guy, we don't know who he is really, I mean, and he's kind of disappeared. So hey, Aaron, will you do something for us? And Moses comes down off the mountain, and Aaron says, well, I mean, they just, they, we gathered this stuff and put it in the fire, and poof, there was a calf. And you think, Aaron, it doesn't work like that, and we all know it. But Israel has been just given, right, these conditions of the covenants. And they have just said, all that God commands of us, we will do. And then the next passage is, in terms of the narrative of Israel, is that they are disobeying. They are falling. They are worshiping idols. Okay, Jeremiah then, later on, talks about them going into exile. Why? Because they worship idols. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they uh, are no gods? But my people have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. The same idea. Eventually, Sirach will write, except for David and Hezekiah and Josiah, three decent kings in the Judean monarchy, all of them were great sinners, for they abandoned the law of the Most High. The kings of Judah came to an end. They gave their power to others and their glory to a foreign nation. Right? The idea is Israel is meant to be God's representatives to the world. They're meant to possess and rule over the promised land. And as they do so, and as they live faithfully to God, worshiping him, they become representatives of God to the world around them. Remember the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'll give you a great name. Kings will come from you. Nations will come from you. But the purpose is that all nations will be blessed through you. You, Abraham, and your descendants that I will give to you will be the people who will bring blessing, redemption to the world. And Israel then fails to do so in the same way that Adam did. But Israel, and this is going to be jumping way ahead now, also has a hope for glory. And in Romans 9, Paul gets at this. Right, we think of the context of Romans 9 through 11, so many questions, so many answers that we don't know or don't have. Nobody knows. But what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? including us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. One scholar says that the glory here that was prepared for them beforehand is the numinous cloud or bright fire that was thought to surround the divine tabernacle or the throne. Another one says it refers to the goal that is attained through God's foreordination it's got to be a reformed 
Presbyterian writing, refers to the goal that is attained through God's foreordination, future splendor in the eschaton. That that is Israel's glory that has been prepared for them beforehand. I think rather it's closer to this idea of riches and glory. In 1 Chronicles, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, right? The characteristics of who God is, who is present in glory. And for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and glory come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is make great to give strength to all. In other words, if we continue in the same line of thinking, the glory that has been prepared for them beforehand is the glory of God, the riches and glory of these things for who God is. Let's get to the final chapter, at least what we're going to do of it tonight. So we're going to not go to Romans 8, but everything up until that. Humanity abdicates its throne. Israel abdicates its throne. But we have hope because of Jesus Christ. So in Romans 2, 7 and 10, to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While those, for those who are self-seeking and to obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, put that into a Roman context and you cannot think splendor, cannot think radiance, nor can you really even think being in the presence of God. Because glory and honor are held together. They are synonyms of one another, at least to some extent. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go more into that. Let's look at Romans 5.2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This could be the idea that we will become made morally perfect someday. It could be. Or it could be the same way that he is using it elsewhere, and which is the more likely context for the background, that it's this idea of renewed humanity, renewed vocation. And that's because of what he's going to go into which is namely Romans 5. As you and I know very well already, we've already looked at it in part. Death reigned, but that's not the end of the story. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because the goal or the hope of glory isn't to shine. And while certainly it's going to be partly being in the presence of God, 100%. For Paul, it goes beyond that. It goes back to being so much more than we are right now. 
It goes back to being what we were meant to be in the beginning, who Jesus Christ is, and then living that out in Christ. We are meant to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this then is the theme that is going to carry into Romans 8 when everything you read is essentially about participating in the life of Christ, which he'll go through in chapter 6 and then keep on going into chapter 8. So let me offer just a conclusion for tonight. This is the glory for which all God's people hope, this refitted, rejeweled, and replaced crown of glory, originally bestowed on humanity in Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 and quickly rejected in Genesis 3. Though his point reaches its climax in 8.30, which is where we'll go tomorrow, nowhere does Paul make it more clear than here in 5.17. This is believers' hope of glory, And to arrive back at where we started, this is why doxa and doxazo cannot be translated in Romans either as splendor or radiance, even as words representing the visible presence of God, though these, of course, might exist in the background. To be glorified is to experience a transformation of status, to be exalted to a new status, one of honor, associated with our representative reign over creation, crowned with glory and honor as Adam was meant to be and as the Messiah now is. And this we'll see all the more clearly when we launch into Romans 8 tomorrow morning. So that's what I have for you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Two over. I, th- I think I went over, so I don't know how much time we actually have for questions. Oh. Haley, thank you. This has been really good tonight. Thanks. And... Um, I want to suggest some homiletical percolating because I keep thinking, how does this preach? How do we connect with our, Wait our till congregation? Wait Thursday. Thursday. You always want the application. You have I to know. do the work first. I know. <laughs> so you tell the students. <laughs> I truly do feel I'm back in seminary. <laughs> Two offerings. Um, and having spent time in Britain, uh, as you did, it made me think uh, with the TV show The Crown, mm. with the abdication mm. yep. of King Edward uh, to Mary Wallace Simpson mm. in the months or years leading up to the war. Mm-hmm. Think of all that was lost uh, when, when uh, a person who should have reigned abdicated. Mm. And think of our own lives. A positive Tolkien thought. I finally figured out why the third book or movie in Lord of the Rings is The Return of the King, where Strider takes his place again. Hmm. And of course, we need Frodo humility to make it work, but Strider had to return to that place. That's my stuff. (laughs) Well done. Hey, Scott. Uh, So I'm just trying to follow you and think through the implications of some of this. Uh, So I sort of have a comment, and I want to hear your reflections on it. First, it seems to me that when we talk about riches and glory, based on what you've shared tonight, could we not 
equate riches and glory with the creation mandate itself to give us dominion. Isn't, isn't that a way to understand the riches and glory that the way it's used in Romans? So anyway, that's, that's a question. And then secondly, if in the first fall we are tempted to focus on the fruit or the tree or whatever, um, pardon the pun, uh, but sin, it seems to me, hearing you, is first failing to act as God's representative under his authority. Maybe sin can be understood that way. And then secondly, can sin be understood as choosing to abdicate human glory of our creation mandate and placing the tempter in authority over us and obeying him rather than God. It's a very different way of understanding sin. In, it, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Maybe. Say, is it a terribly different way, or is it just putting different words to it? If we think of sin as a lack of obedience, it's just saying, why are we supposed to be obedient to begin with? In which context are we meant to be obedient. Um, and that is then the context of, well, it's in part what Adam was describing this morning of faith and obedience. You put those two together for Paul and you get faithfulness. Um, I think it's just saying the, the overarching cosmic reason for human obedience is because of who they were meant to be. Right? We're not meant to be obedient to God for the sake of being obedient to God. We're not meant to obey a law for the sake of obeying the law. Sometimes we feel that way. But it's because of something much greater than that. It's because of who we're meant to be. It's because of what we're meant to do as individuals and as, as a, a human species of, of sorts. Um, it, you know, it puts it into the context of God and his creation, rather than just saying, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. Well, why not? And as each of you know that, you know, if you, any of you work with students, with youth, or I'm sure many of you are parents. I was a, I'm not a parent, but I certainly said to my parents, why? Why do I have to do this? And the answer is, because I told you so. <laughs> and that doesn't work. Like, you just, it's not a good answer. In the same way that why are we meant to, um, you know, do one thing versus another? Why, why does Paul have such a strong emphasis on sexual ethics? Because it's not just about what we're doing with our bodies. Uh, you know, that's not the end of it. It's what we're doing with our bodies and how that then represents this much larger reality that we're participating in, which is a new world, a new kingdom, in which things operate differently, where we are representing that new world. Um, why, are we meant to, why are we meant to help the poor? Is it just for the sake of doing it? Well, no, within the kingdom of God, within this new reality that Christ has launched through the death and resurrection, things change. The new creation has come. And if we're actually meant to be living into that and participating in that, well, that's why we do have ethics. You know, for Paul, it's this, um, uh, it's the in indicative and imperative. It's here's the fact, here's reality, now live that out. So we don't do ethics for the sake of ethics. 
We don't follow laws and be obedient for the sake of being obedient. We do it because something is different. We do it because there's something much larger than ourselves that we are living into. So I think, I think to answer the question, I, I don't know that I'm saying or want to say anything different than what we traditionally say in terms of what sin is, but just placing that into its overarching context of the biblical narrative of God and creation and redemption. Something more than just trying to be morally upright or morally you know, pure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, Yeah. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that because when I read Paul um, and I, I read him as somebody who sees the big picture, that's very different than what I grew up hearing, either at you know, a Christian camp or um, even in some of my undergrad Bible classes, where the emphasis is um, individual morality. Um, and then you get bogged down in that. And you don't want to do it because it doesn't seem like, well, again, why? So then people turn away from the faith or they you know, just live in sin you know, behind closed doors because it seems like that's the end. But if we put that into this much larger context of what God has done in Christ and changing the world and take at least Paul's theology of kind of inaugurated eschatology seriously, the end is here. We're living in it. And if we want to, you know, as, as Bart describes, as Adam's describing through Bart, um, or Bart's describing through Adam, <laughs> if that's reality, then we live it. And for Paul, the, the idea of you know, participating in Christ, and Adam's talked about it, I'm going to talk about it more tomorrow, because it's through and through in Romans 8, that's our reality. And so that changes everything about ethics, um, you know, our, our ethics are living in Christ rather than this is okay, that's not okay, this is okay, that's not okay. Um, because the law is fulfilled in love. So, yeah, so I'm glad for that. Thank you, Haley. appreciate this. Um, makes me want to jump straight to the kingdom teaching of Jesus and how would you, would you connect what you've just said about the restoration of glory with the kingdom teaching of Jesus, and if so, how? Yeah. Um, okay, so if, if Jesus is at the right hand of God, as we believe he is, and he rules over everything, and he has said the kingdom of God has come. And the prayer that he taught us to pray is may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Unless we want to say that really none of that is happening, then glory has to have everything to do with it. If glory is about ruling, which is to say representing God in the way that we're meant to do, which is to bring life, to bring hope, to bring mercy, Right? Think of Jesus' actions in the Gospels. When he is 
showing mercy and showing pity, when he's welcoming the sinners and the prostitutes and the people who are typically excluded, he's saying everything changes in the kingdom of God. Everything you thought was normal is not normal because in the kingdom of God, the last come first and the first are last. Um, and that's what, that's what sorting out the chaos of the evil world looks like. So it's not here completely, um, as the writer of Hebrews says, but he clearly hasn't yet subjected all things to himself. But he's made a start. And the start allows for him and his people, those who find their identity in him. Um, I, the phrase I use for my students for this is, what's true of him becomes true of you. If it's true of him, it's true of you. And that's that reality of our identity that we live into. And if that's our true identity, then what we saw Jesus doing, in other words, the, the meaning behind it for what the kingdom of God looks like on earth, that's what we're meant to be striving for. Not in a, a social gospel kind of way, but recognizing truly, ultimately, that God has done something on the cross. Um, I, I don't know which book it's in, um, some of you might know, Tom Wright, in, in one of his books, has this line I really like, where he says, um, God did something on the cross, uh, a result of which everything is different. Right? If our version of the world and reality really isn't changed by what Jesus did on the cross, then we don't fully understand what God did on the cross. He confronted the powers of evil he launched a new kind of you know, battle of war and won. That's Easter. There's a new reality, a new creation, a new kingdom, a new ruler in town. And you know, that is still happening, but it's, it's done. That's, that's the resurrection. So glory is then living into that reality. As humanity was meant to do when when justice reigned, right? When you think of Genesis 1, justice reigns. Everything has an order. God looked and he saw and he said, it is good. He looked and he saw and he said, it is good. At the end of, you know, the, the six days, he looks at humanity and he says, well done me, right? Very good. And then he sits back and he rests, not because he's fatigued. God doesn't get fatigued, because he's enjoying the beauty of what he's created and how everything operates just the way it's meant to. What happens at the fall in Genesis 3? Chaos comes, disorder comes, injustice comes. That's when everything gets altered. So if we're trying to live into our vocation as humans in the way that it was in the beginning, then we're living into this new kingdom of God where justice reigns, where God reigns, where mercy reigns, those types of things. So I think it's entirely connected.